to episode 37 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. This week inside the Roleplay Studio, I am very fortunate to have Jason Morningstar, one of the founders of Billy Pulpit Games and writer of Fiasco, another excellent, breathtaking, and astonishing games. <laughs> so hi there, Jason. How's it going? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you, Daniel? I'm doing just fine. Have so, you recovered from Big Bad Con? I, I have. Well, physically... Physically, I've cover, uh, recovered, but um, it put so many earworms in my head that I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm currently uh, producing things uh, like, like well, I wouldn't go here to say like crazy because you know I have children and jobs and stuff like that. But as, as crazily as I can uh, produce something, then uh, yeah, that would be. Uh, that would I be found it very to. inspiring too. Yeah, yeah, because there were a lot of different things going on there, like uh, Luke's. We played in Luke's um, Luke Crane's uh, LARP. Um, we did, and then we did. Uh, Tri- Midnight Tribunal. I think it's just called Tribunal, though, right? It's the Tribunal, yeah. yeah it's the Tribunal, yeah. which is a game, which a sort of a LARP game, which which you ran. Um, and then I played Fiesco with Lenny um, Balsera, and then I ran my game a few times and got to have some interesting conversations um, in between. So, yeah, that's uh, that's. I couldn't ask for a better con. That Sean knocked it out of the park in terms of. She really did. Yeah. Highly recommended. And uh, and Kristen as well organising the the role playing and just everything went like a well oiled machine and uh, I got to meet up with some people I hadn't seen for a long time Hamish Cameron who was episode twenty five um, who I desperately tried to get to realise who I actually was but then when we met face to face it uh, he he finally discovered uh, who I was which was nice so so yeah all in all it was a great experience and I got a chance to meet you which is why you're on the show. <laughs> So that was a real treat for me, Jason. We uh, yeah, we played a lot see. together. Yeah, we did. You, uh, you omitted which the Road to Lindisfarne, which we also played together. I did omit the Road to Lindisfarne, but in, yes, that's right. That's episode thirty-five, I think, and that was that was great too. It was really uh, it was a nice sort of we got a, a getaway. We got to enjoy the presidential suite with some uh, some cookies and, and this and that, and it was uh, yeah, it was it was great. Um, so I'll get on to a question here for you. Um, yeah. if, you, if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would it be? And that is as in you personally actually become one rather than you like you just roll up a character and play the game. Oh, I don't know. I really like myself. I'm happy with who I am. So like role-playing characters, uh, they're usually one-dimensional and boring and sociopaths. So uh, <laughs> I guess I'm going to uh, plead the fifth on that because I don't really want to be uh, any of the characters that I play. Fair enough. Um, so what about any sort of setting, though? Is there any setting that particularly appeals to you? Like, would you like to be able to do magic or uh, <laughs> be in the far future or something? Oh, um, what is the setting that I would like? Can, can I just visit and come home? Um, sure. I'll allow that. Oh, cool. Well, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated right now by the Edwardian era, so I'd love to go back to, I don't know, 1911, maybe, sure. and uh, just hang out there for a short time. And uh, come back after I had uh, contracted smallpox or whatever. Nope. And maybe you can meet Jeeves and Wooster and have uh, have a fabulous time. Um, I'm sure, yeah. So, or, or yeah, or, or my hero Theodore Roosevelt, or oh, you know. Roosevelt, of course. Of course. Yeah. How, how could I have? How could I have been so remiss? <laughs> so, this the previous weekend, um, I was at the Edmonton Expo, which is the first sort of comic book uh, show, and I and I hadn't taken my book out to actually try and sell it before. Um, and so I, um, so I got dressed up in my Victorian outfit and I took my books along and, and I had, I had hoped that I would sell enough books to cover the cost of being there. Unfortunately I did. And, and as a bonus, I got to meet a whole bunch of uh, cool people and talk about role playing type, uh, type stuff. But one of the things that, uh, I had to do was a sort of 
encountered two, or actually sort of three types of people. The first type of person was somebody that didn't know anything about um, role-playing at all. Um, the second type was somebody who'd heard about Dungeons and & Dragons and give it a try. And then the third mm-hmm. type was people that had sort of tried story games and, and so on and so forth. Now, it was really easy when they were Dungeons & Dragons players or people that had played a whole bunch of different stuff. But the biggest challenge I found was describing role-playing to somebody they'd never played before. So what's your role-playing elevator pitch, um, including your go-to example for somebody that's never actually role-played before but showing interest? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, and this, this occasionally happens with me. I, I end up playing fiasco, particularly with people who are new to role playing, uh, fairly regularly. In fact, I played with some folks last night, uh, some of whom were seasoned role players and some of whom were not. Uh, so my pitch, I guess I would keep it really simple. I'd say games are fun. You like games. You like me. So trust me when I tell you this is a fun game. Right, sure. Uh, and uh, take it from there. So uh, at that point, I'm not prescribing the activity and I'm not making, I'm not telling them what it's going to be in a, in a, in a very specific way. I'm just uh, letting them open their mind to the idea that we're going to play a game together and then we sort of build from there. And there, there, there's no weirdness, no defensiveness. There's no, well, but we're, we're collaborating to tell a story or we're playing cowboys and Indians, but we don't leave our seats. Uh, it, it, these are weird sort of strained metaphors that in some ways are accurate, but in other ways I think for a new person can be kind of perplexing. So I think keeping it really simple and uh, making it relatable to things that they are comfortable with uh, is usually effective. And then, you know, modeling the behavior you want to see and and supporting them. Right. And if I wanted to refine that even further, somebody's walking past a booth and you say, do you know role-playing games? And they say, no. Like, what would you, do you have like a two-second pitch you give to them? Like, this is what it's like to to role-play. Lenny Balsera um, uh, said he likes to use other kind dice, but with with coins uh, to describe a, a scene. And I tried that out a few times, which I found to be quite effective. But have you ever been in a situation? Oh, where I see. So, so this is the case where you're actually sort of making a sales both. pitch on the hobby. Both, both, both are, 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 are useful to know, but I was just relating it to the situation that I was in um, this week in which I don't usually do for this question. You know, how would you like try and catch somebody that, you know, you had like maybe two minutes or three minutes with? <laughs> that is a, that, that is a more difficult question. Mm. Um, I think, uh, that's a really good opportunity to put someone into uh, to create a, a sort of instant setting and situation using something that they're probably comfortable with, like a police procedural, and uh, say, "All right, well, this is what role playing is like. You're the cop, and I'm the suspect, and you know you want to find out whether I committed this crime or not. Go." Sure. Okay. Great. Uh, and then you know, a couple of minutes later, and and that's I, I think that we're sort of naturally wired to tell stories and to understand the ideas of character and point of view. And people just jump right in to that sort of a situation very easily, I think. Sure. Okay, we're well, going back to one of the things you mentioned previously, and it's something that I was discussing with uh, Jeremy Tidwell in episode 36, but but also it's come up a couple of times previously, particularly in conjunction with, uh, with Fiasco. And I wonder how you feel about the idea that playing Fiasco is um, or, or story games in general is more difficult for somebody with role playing experience, but no story game experience, than it is for somebody new coming to the hobby, at least initially. Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's often the case. I've seen that. I sort of have anecdotal evidence that that's true. That um, if you're coming, if you're approaching a game like Fiasco, which 
in term, for context for your audience, Fiasco is a game that doesn't have a game master. It's very focused, uh, but it's also uh, it also makes pretty big demands of you in terms of your creative contributions. There's an expectation that you're going to be engaged uh, throughout the game, uh, even when it's not your your turn, uh, which can be sort of you know creatively exhausting. It's a challenging game to play in some ways. Uh, but for people who don't know anything about role playing, who are like, well, what is this? Let's give this a try. Uh, they tend to do really well with Fiasco because essentially they're doing things that they know how to do in a in a reasonably comfortable uh, environment. And there's still that creative challenge, but people like a creative challenge. And if you contrast that with uh, uh, someone who quote unquote knows how to role play, mm-hmm. right? They, they're very comfortable with a particular style of, of play that they, you know, maybe they've been doing for, for many years. Uh, and uh, so they come to this and then they have those same challenges, the creative challenges, but they also have the challenge of um, sort of overcoming their own assumptions and their own instincts, which are very good for the kind of game that they normally sure. play, but maybe really bad for a game like Fiasco. Mm. So slower to start, but then uh, once they catch on, it's a little easier? Sometimes, yeah. Uh, sometimes they struggle throughout and find that it's just not for them, that they like the way that they play and that they're comfortable with and that this represents something that's just not in their wheelhouse. And that's fine. Right, right. So is there anything uh, coming out that you're really looking forward to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a, a great time. I'm really excited. To, I think the, the thing that I'm most stoked about is uh, Gregor Vuga's game uh, Sagas of the Icelanders, right. which, which he is... Uh, he has an Indiegogo campaign uh, to crowd so, crowdfund uh, Sagas of the Icelanders that's underway right now. Mm-hmm. And I would encourage uh, you and your listeners to go check it out. So here's the deal with uh, Sagas of the Icelanders. He took uh, Apocalypse World, which is an excellent game by Vincent Baker, mm-hmm. uh, and he sort of reskinned it to tell uh, stories about Iceland in uh, 900 AD, 1000 AD, uh, the time of the sagas. And as he did this, uh, he Gregor very uh, cleverly sort of recontextualized the, the the structure of Apocalypse World to, in in a very thoughtful and rigorous way, emulate the Icelandic sagas. And it's just it is it's so well done, and it's just such a cool game. I I'm a big fan of the sagas myself. I really I love that that literature and the stories that that emerged from that. Um, and this game just it, it does a great job of emulating that time and place, and it does it in a way that doesn't require you to know anything about it because everything you need to know is built into not only sort of your character class, if you will, but uh, your playbook, if you're familiar with Apocalypse World, but also in the moves that are available to you. Um, and uh, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's very well done. And when you sit down to play it, it is pretty much impossible for you not to tell a compelling story that's full of very uh, reasonably authentic Viking uh, nonsense. Uh, so uh, I just, I love it. It's a great game, and he's doing a really good job with it. And I'm actually contributing to it as well. So, uh, one of the one of the 
uh, stretch goals, I, I wrote some stuff for it. So just sort of a, out of the kindness of my heart because I like the game so much. So I'm stoked about Sagas of the Icelanders. I'm stoked about uh, Joe McDonald's uh, The Quiet Year, which is a deeply weird kind of... I don't even know. It's not quite a role-playing game, uh, but it's super cool, and I'm excited about that. He's pushing interesting boundaries uh, and exploring weird uh, weird space with that. Uh, uh, Ross Cowman's game, The Serpent's Tooth, uh, is should it's done. It should be here any day, and that's a really cool sort of focused one-shot about uh, the burdens of uh, governing uh, and uh, uh, the sort of... Uh, the... the uh, the end of power. I, I don't know. It's hard to describe, but it's a cool game too. So those are three that I'm really, really happy to to see coming. Sure. And uh, you've got a fan or two yourself, Jason. Have you got anything in the pipeline at the moment you want to tell us about? I'm, uh, well, okay. So we just finished uh, Durance. And in fact, next week, the books will arrive for Durance, which is a game that uh, we had a big Kickstarter campaign for that was successful and uh, we'll be shipping those out. So that's almost done that's almost out of uh, out of uh, my brain and i don't know exactly what's next i don't have like a, a big major project that's that's uh that's already on the front burner i got a bunch of stuff that uh, we may see next year i'm really interested and excited about the intersections of uh, live action play with tabletop play right. and with board games uh so uh i've got uh two uh, LARPs essentially, uh, or LARP hybrids that I'm working on that are both going to sort of debut next week at Metatopia, at a convention in New Jersey that's all about game design. And I'm excited about both of those, and I suspect that they will move forward, uh, but you never know with these things. Um, one of them uh, takes a page out of Durance, which is uh, uh, Durance is sort of based on history, but I put it into a science fiction kind of uh, milieu. And this game does the same thing. It's about the uh, Lebanese Civil War in the 1980s, but it takes place on a on a faraway planet in space. Right. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, and if you want to check out um, the uh, sort of development as it go along, goes along, Jason's uh, G Plus is a good thing to is a good thing to keep an eye on because you you seem to post quite a bit of a bit of stuff on there about you know what's going on and what's going on in your head and if you connect the dots you can get a bit of a feeling for you know how things are progressing there would that be accurate yeah that's true uh, i use google plus sort of as a development journal i guess and i have conversations about game design there and i would love for your listeners to be my friends there um I, if you if you friend me send me a message too and tell me who you are and where you heard of me um, and I'll be glad to friend you back. There you go. Um, so what's the best and or most inspiring film or TV show for you for role-playing? Like something you've watched and went, wow, I'd like to... <laughs> right yeah, that's a great question, Daniel. You know, the movie that I will want to recommend to you, I'm recommending this to you personally right. and to the people who are listening, is uh, a, a Thai movie from 2000 called Tears of the Black Tiger. Have you heard of Tears of the Black Tiger? I, I have not, unless I've oh. got a new plus there. <laughs> oh, you are going to be so you'll, you'll be a happy man. This is this is uh, this is a, a film that I would love to play in the world of. So um, 
it's this highly stylized Western. It's a, it's in many ways an American Western that's been overlaid with a sort of Thai uh, romantic melodrama gloss, mm-hmm. which is super interesting because the the guy who directed it was really commenting on the cinema of Thailand, where there where there's, there's this great tradition of action films and romantic melodrama, but he's doing it in the form of a Western and an American Western, and it's just beautiful and it's really funny and weird and it's just uh, and it's this great uh, love story and there's this dastardly outlaws and it's just fantastic it's a really good movie and it it, it uh, mashes up these wildly disparate genres in such a great way uh tears of the black tiger sure. great movie uh totally inspiring um and i would uh i would uh, love to to be a part of that world and did uh, you get that through netflix or is that something you ordered online or I own a copy. I love this movie so much. I bought the DVD, but um, and I, I'm not sure where you get it. Maybe you can get it on Netflix. I hope so, because sure. I would like as many people as possible to see it. Alrighty. So, how many role playing books do you own, and what was your first? <laughs> um, I don't own that many. I I own, my my rule typically is that I only buy things I'm absolutely certain I'm going to play. Right. So. Uh, uh, Everything on my shelf is stuff that I either play regularly or that I've played in the past, for the most part. Not always, but... um, So I bet I own 30 games, uh, and then, like, on a shelf, and then maybe some more uh, on PDF and so forth. But it's not, like, a massive collection. I'm looking at my my role-playing shelf, and it's it's about, I don't know, a meter wide, three feet wide, and uh, it's, you know, that's it. Have you gotten into more games since you've been a designer or has that sort of curbed your um your purchasing and, and and looking at games and that you're always in development mode just for a bit of context i find that when i'm writing i don't like to read too much other stuff because i want to feel like my ideas are my my own and it's hard to, not to get them leaking across do you have do you have that yeah going on? i don't uh, I, I don't i don't share that philosophy i'm uh, i'm happy to to borrow from other people's work uh, if they have brilliant ideas you see the influences i wear them on my sleeve if you look at a game like fiasco clearly i was influenced by in a wicked age uh and other you know the other games that uh, that are sort of in the in the family tree and mm-hmm. then you can look you can look at games that fiasco has influenced and i'm very proud of that sure. so uh, so uh th- th- that's I think that's completely acceptable, and I, I'm open to being influenced by others or inspired. If you look at Durance, there's some microscope in there, for example, because I love microscope, and it does some really clever things that uh, that I borrowed. Um, so, uh, so I'm always looking at games, but like if I'm going to go to the store and buy one, I I need to really love it, and it needs to be something that uh, that I know my local crew is going to enjoy and that we'll play together. Sure, yeah. Well, I guess we're all standing on the uh, shoulders of giants in, in, in totally. one, one way or another. Um, so what's your definition of an indie game? Yeah, see, that's like a semantic rat hole, isn't it? Mm. I, uh, I, that's not a term I use. I don't ever say indie game or story game um, because I dislike those terms. I think that they... Uh, they uh, get into identity politics and they lead to factionalism and ugliness and stupidity. And, and that's too bad because I think uh, we don't really have the vocabulary to, to be able to say, this is my play preference and these are the kind of games that scratch that particular itch. And I wish that we could talk about that. Um, so I, I call my games small press games, which is completely accurate sure. and is also completely unhelpful to a purchaser. Mm. Uh, you know, <laughs> if I, I say that and it doesn't 
it doesn't tell you anything about it. No, uh, no. But but it, my assumption is that that's going to open a door to a conversation, and then I can say, it's this kind of game. This is the experience you're going to have playing it, yeah. um, and that is more useful than a label. Right. I think. Right. So save our labels for homemade jam. Then. Yeah, that's kind of the way I feel, unfortunately. Right. So if you know if someone says, "Oh, well, it's a story game," that doesn't tell you anything because right. Dungeons and Dragons is a story game. Yeah, sure. um, so anyway. Yeah, yeah. that's away from divisions. I do personally, and I think that that serves me well. But uh, yep, oh, no, uh, I, I agree entirely. I think that uh, you know, like uh, naming and, and labeling something sort of feeds into our primitive tribalism, right? Like it's uh, yeah, I think so. And wow, it's amazing to me to see uh, you know the Star Trek people diss the Star Wars people, and it's like, guys, you are the same people. Uh, and I feel that way about games in general. Okay, well, if you could role-play with four people, living or dead, <laughs> who would they be and why? Okay, so I have to pick four people? That's right, but they can't be somebody who's deceased from your family you just want to see again, and it can't be uh, game designers, not even Gary Gygax. Not even Gary Gygax. Or okay, so I've got to play with right now. So they don't <laughs> okay, so I'm going to pick four people, uh, and they're going to all be people pulled from history that I think are interesting, because I think that would be fun to sit at the table. And I'm assuming that I have a universal translator, and we're all going to get along, of right? Of right? I mean, this is, this is make-believe here, Jason. Right, okay, so... So uh, here are my four people. Uh, let's start with Odabenga, who was a, a Congolese pygmy who got abducted and was part of the uh, Louisiana Purchase Exposition and hung out in the United States for a while um, and then sadly uh, committed suicide because he couldn't afford to go home. Uh, so Odabenga, uh, awesome guy, very talented, very tragic. Uh, let's see. So I got three more. How about... Uh, Oh, 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 the, uh, a Scholastica, who was, uh, she's a saint. She was a twin sister of St. Benedict of Nursia. Right. Really interesting lady. Um, two more, Snorri Sturlson, of course, who is an Icelandic guy. Uh, he basically, uh, you know, wrote uh, a big piece of what we know about uh, Iceland, uh, or uh, sort of uh, proto-historical Iceland. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting guy, a serial philanderer, uh, and a beautiful poet. Uh, one more, one more. Jean Robert Houdin, the uh, French magician. Mm-hmm. There we go. So I got Oda Benga, Snorri Strelson, <laughs> Scholastica, and uh, Robert Houdin. Right, and, and what are you guys going to play? Oh, we're totally playing Fiasco. Why, why would you even it? ask? What place it? Uh, well, I would let them pick. Oh, that's very, very good of you. And what would you have for snacks there? <sighs> snacks. Uh, that's a tough one. I think I would let Scholastica bring the snacks. Would she have to make them, or can she buy them on the way here? Whatever she wants. I'm just I'm curious as to what she would bring from the year 500. <laughs> well, one of the things that that, uh, that came up in conjunction with Snacks McGay Baker, I think episode maybe 34, it might have been 30, one of the two with her. Um, we were talking about how she felt that Snacks should um, sort of go along with what it is that you're uh, you're actually playing do you oh yeah sure you, you see that in a thousand and one nights where mm. she she recommends you know sort of uh middle eastern themed uh, treats and so forth mm, sure and, and along again with that is when you're role-playing do you ever uh, add um any extra elements aside from you know the the game and the um, i'm not talking about a lap here but i'm just saying like do you ever like to, like uh, Lillian Carr Moore talked about turning the temperature down for a, for a sort of a, a game that she played where it was like 
uh, fear, sort of like a horror-inspired game and stuff like that. Do you, any, do, do you ever do anything like that? Anything you found particularly effective? I do sometimes. Uh, uh, occasionally, I'll use music to sort of set a tone. Um, uh, we've we've cooked thematic meals in the past, and that's that's fun. I haven't done that in a while, but it's something that that we have done and enjoyed. I remember we uh, we had a game where uh, it was sort of a. a one shot where we were the crew of a B-17 and uh, I was running it and my friend Steve said, well, I'm going to cook a meal that's sort of going to be themed and based on what an air crew would eat before they left on a mission in the 40s. And so that was really fun. Um, I would say that on on the whole, I don't do a lot of that stuff. I used to do it more and I just don't have as much time to make a cool prop or, uh, you know, create fun things but i fully support that i mean i think that's uh that's fun if you can play with your atmosphere to or, or the environment to make it more compelling and interesting sure. so who's your favorite villain and why <laughs> villain uh it doesn't necessarily have to be uh like fictional it could be it could be real but i'm mostly interested in the why okay let's go with let's go with fiction uh because i don't People who are villains in real life, I don't really want to favorite them. But how about uh, Daniel de Basola from The Duchess of Malfi? Okay. Right? Okay, so Daniel de Basola, this is a John Webster play, and uh, here's a guy who uh, it, he arranges the murder of like everybody. It's a revenge tragedy. He's involved in the murder of the Duchess herself, all her kids, the main characters, his boss, uh, the Cardinal, um, all these people. Uh, and uh, when, it, it, at the end, he, he sees the Duchess uh, go to her death uh, with honor and integrity and this unshakable dignity, and he's uh, so ashamed of himself that uh, he turns around and avenges her death, which is just crazy. So, he's a villain, right? He's this murderous badass, but uh, he he's this incredibly complex character because uh, through through his deeds and through witnessing the, the horrific deeds of others, he completely changes. So, like if you meet Daniel de Basola, if he were a player character or an NPC, if you met him early in that game's arc, you'd be like, "Wow, this guy is a total psychopath, and I hate him." And if you met him at the end, he would have done his best to uh, atone for for what you know what what he had for his crimes and maybe is even a, a redemptive figure which is pretty interesting right uh, so yeah i like him he's cool yeah, so i like uh i like revenge tragedy and the duchess of malfi is pretty awesome so is it important for you to identify with a villain yeah yeah totally i mean it, like if they're just a murderous rage monster psychopath what's the point mm. you know i mean uh if you're going to have a villain then they need to not think they're a villain right they need to be doing good works yeah. and saving the world right. Um, and if they're, you know, and and if there's not at least a glimmer of doubt in the eyes of your players, then you have failed. Mm. You know, if it's just an irredeemable ass, then uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So, who's your favorite hero, and why? <laughs> My favorite hero, uh, I guess. Uh, uh, I don't know Theodore Roosevelt who was hilarious and awesome uh, is somebody that uh, 
is sort of everything that's right and wrong with America. So right. I'll go with him. And it's the same kind of thing. You can look at him and be like, that guy is great. He is a genuine hero. But at the same time, you've just got to step back and it just gives you pause, the crazy stuff that he did. And the, you know, some of the ideas he had that were just not good. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I, again, a complex character that uh, did many things that were laudable and many things that were just stupid and or reprehensible. Okay. I think that makes the best hero. Oh, yeah. That, uh, that human uh, element, you know, like a cardboard hero is just as bad as a cardboard villain, at least. In Absolutely. My opinion, in, in my opinion. So I've got a couple of uh, matchups for you here, and I don't necessarily mean they're going to they're gonna duke it out, but in terms of your favorite, um, Harry Potter or Luke Skywalker? <laughs> well, I've not read any of the Harry Potter books, so I'll go with Luke Skywalker, although I don't like him either. <laughs> So it's the devil you know in that respect. Exactly. All right. So what about Arwen and uh, Princess Leia? Uh, Arwen being that lady from uh, the Lord of the Rings. That's right, yeah. yeah. In the books the one, rather than the films. Is she the one played by Kate Blanchett or is that somebody else? Uh, no, Arwen is, uh, is uh, Liv Tyler. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's all a blur to me. I never read The Lord of the Rings either, so oh, I got to go with Princess Leia. <laughs> that's that's two weeks in a row that uh, I've had people that have uh, have con- role playing people that have confessed to having never uh, never read Lord of the Rings. It's I always felt bad about the fact that I hadn't read it till I was you know uh, fourteen or fifteen, and my role playing friends have <laughs> missed it. But, but now it appears that it's actually. I wonder if there's a diminishing number of people that have, have read it as uh, I don't as, know. As material. It, it's an interesting question. Mm. Uh, it certainly is sort of the seminal text of our hobby, so mm. I should be ashamed. But wow, <laughs> it's just it's not that not that compelling. I got ten pages in and said, "Okay, mm. I got better things to do." Yeah, and I'd be curious to get your take on it. Do you think it's because it was written at a time when you couldn't people couldn't readily access um, ideas about a fantasy setting and so Tolkien needed to dot all his I's and cross all his T's so that people got a feeling for for what was going on over and above what you might do in a regular a fantasy now uh, well I think people today are lazy right because they've got all that stuff to, to draw on they, mm. if they if they say this dude is an elf you don't have to worry about it because Tolkien told you what an elf was right. um, and so in that respect no although there are other you know detailed world builders that certainly preceded him mm. um so yeah, I think uh, I think part of it is that what he did was a massive pastiche, right? And he mm. he was stealing from sources that I actually really like. Right. So so it just it kind of leaves me cold. All right, well, fair enough. Okay, what about Indiana Jones and uh, John McClane? Okay, so John McClane's the guy from the Bruce Willis movies. Yeah, Die Hard. Uh, Right, and uh, so I'll go with Indiana Jones. He's a uh, he's a, a complex individual and uh, has a sort of pulpy sensibility that I like. Hmm. So, would you prefer Indy or Han Solo then? Indiana Jones. Still, and what about Indy and Deckard? The, okay, so these are all Harrison Ford characters yeah, yeah, from, from Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I'll stick with Indiana Jones. He he uh, he. He's in an interesting time and place that I can get behind, and he does cool stuff. So when you're, in a, you're playing a game where there is a, a game master, um, if you could only be a game master or a player, which would you choose? Oh, I'd totally be a game master. I love being a game master. And, and what about that, uh, is it that, that you like? Do you think that game designers are more likely to be game masters or that they like to be frustrated players that just don't have the game they want to play? 
Probably, uh, you know, a proportion of both. But my sort of anecdotal evidence is that most people who feel compelled to design games are really trying to fix the problems in games that they like but feel that they could improve. And those are usually game master type people. (laughs) Fair enough. So how do you prepare for a game session, assuming you're not playing a game that... uh that doesn't have, uh, that has its like GMless or, or is, is, is off the cuff, if you will. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I don't prepare a lot. I prepare less and less all the time. And uh, one interesting thing that I do, and I don't know if other people do this, but I, I certainly do, is I sort of have internal dialogues as I'm taking the bus home or like the day of the game, I'll be thinking about it and I'll be thinking about interesting things about the the setting or about the characters. I'll think about how I'm going to play a particular guy or maybe I'm the drive over to my friend's house for game night. I'll be like having little dialogues with myself between these, uh, these NPCs. Um, so, you know, I, I spend some, some time uh, essentially alone thinking about what the world's going to look like and feel like and, and what kind of things I can bring to it that evening. Right, so you sort of daydream the, the game. Yeah. yeah. Yep. yep. Chris, Chris Bailey, episode uh, five, is one of the guys that I played with first when uh, the Storyteller sister came out and said that that was the way that he found it was most effective to um, to repair was, you know, sort of daydream what it is that's going to happen. So if any of those situations crop up, you know, he can... Uh, you can sort of like tap into some of those those thoughts you've you've already had, but you know, having said that, uh, what inspired you to then uh, get into games where, or that is, to design games where there was you know there was not that delineation between the game master and the player, and also um, there was not the same sort of requirement for time in terms of uh, preparation. Sure. Uh, well, it's two separate questions, but mm. uh, the uh, in terms of making games that don't have. A, a traditional distribution of authority or games that are uh, GM-less, uh, that really uh, emerged from my deep love for being a game master. I like those responsibilities, and my impulse is to share them as widely as I can. So GM-less is a misnomer. It's a bad term. Uh, it's more, I mean, GM-full is really what these games are because they're they're more not necessarily evenly, but more broadly distributing that authority around the table, uh, which uh, means that that everybody gets a piece of that fun. And it's not uh, essentially a binary relationship where one guy has all that particular kind of fun and everybody else has a different kind of fun. Now everybody has all those kinds of fun. And uh, that's just my sort of my natural inclination. And that's, it's, uh, it's project specific. I mean, I've designed games that have a, a pretty rigid game master. It just it just happens that the the ones that have uh, seen the most acclaim and that have been sort of published for for money are all GMless at this point. Sure. And the other one was about time, and that uh, is a function of me making games that I want to play with my friends, and my friends and I play hard for two hours that's Mm. pretty much what we do each week i'm in two groups and each group plays for two or two and a half hours and that's all we got so Mm. i'm making games that work in that in that time frame yeah and that's sort of a a pattern i think that's emerged as the bulge of the role players go go through you know like we've got less and less time available you've got kids and jobs and all that type of carry-on so it's i mean to me it seems that that's pushed game design and in a certain direction um it's yeah i agree and uh, so, yeah, so I was going to ask what your thoughts were on that, but you've, you've, your thoughts were that... Uh, <laughs> I, my thoughts are your thoughts. Uh, yes, I think that uh, people realize that uh, creating games for 
people with limited time or limited amounts uh, of energy to to prep is gonna uh, is gonna be successful because there's a huge audience out there that that's the only way they can play. Mm. So, what's your favorite book or role playing book, I should say, uh, or supplement um, other than something that you've uh, that you've written? <laughs> well, uh, actually, my favorite book or supplement isn't something that I've written, even if that had been on the table. Mm-hmm. It's uh, and anybody who knows me knows this. I'm a huge fan of the Fantasy Games Unlimited edition of Bunnies and Burrows, which was published in 1976, and it's just an insane, groundbreaking game in so many weird ways, um, and I just love it. It's really good. I've never even heard of that before. Is it? What? <laughs> what? Seriously? I've read, I've read Lord of the Rings, Jason. Come on. Yeah, it's true. Okay. We're even. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Bunnies and Burrows, uh, it was uh, it was designed and published in 1976, and w- which is pretty early in the history mm-hmm. of the hobby. Yeah. Um, and it's a game that has some of the trappings. Of, it, you play rabbits, right? You're in a fantasy world of intelligent rabbits. It's basically the Watership Down role-playing game, but they, of course, cool. couldn't say that. Cool. Uh, but you're playing rabbits, and it, it has some of the trappings of D&D that you can see. You have uh, essentially this, the same kinds of statistics, and they're 3 to 18, and uh, you have character classes. But those statistics are things like your sense of smell, Right, mm-hmm. smell is a huge part of this game, which is so cool. Mm-hmm. And um, the the character classes are radically different from what what was offered in uh, original D anD. d It has rules for fighting that are way ahead of the curve. They're years ahead of their time. They're they they use a combat matrix in a way that uh, uh, I guess you kind of did in Chainmail, but it's much more elaborate in Bunnies and Burrows, and it's cool. There are ru- uh, rules for reproduction and death. There are rules for l- languages and like just a lot of a lot of thought and care went into this game, and it's just sort of a hidden gem. When people talk about the evolution of the hobby, there should really be more conversation about Bunnies and Burrows. And now there will be. I hope so. <laughs> so what's the perfect number of, of people to role play? Uh, I would say that the, 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 you know, obviously it's dependent on a lot of factors, but of overall a sweet spot's probably four people. So if it's a game mastered game, three people in a GM, if it's a GM less game, four people, mm-hmm. that's sort of my personal preference. I've played for a long time in a group that's three, me and two other guys. And that works well too. It's very intimate. Mm-hmm. Four allows you to have interesting uh, sort of dyads uh, in terms of the social interaction, which I think are, is, is maybe better. Mm. Do you think that um, it's a bit of a risky proposition, though, when you have so few few people in your game that if, if one person is uh, is away, it can really throw off the dynamic? Yeah, that's true. You have to have people who are committed or you have to be patient and accept that sometimes you're going to play board games or do something different. I'm in two weekly groups. One of them has four people that are pretty consistent. The other one is has five, used, it, until recently had six, and we would have a quorum of four uh, almost always, sometimes five. So we had to choose games that worked if somebody didn't show up. Right. Uh, and, th- and that's worked out pretty well. Okay. So what makes a great con game? Uh, so you're playing at a convention. It, uh, it's a game uh, that... Uh, is, that accommodates the time pressure, right? So a game that you can successfully present in four hours. Mm. Um, 
So any of the, I, I think uh, a great con game typically is going to be a, a very focused. Uh, a lot of the, the uh, small press games mm-hmm. that I'm a fan of are going to fit into that slot. Right. Um, uh, but conversely, like I really like Apocalypse World, and it's not a. I don't think it's a great convention game. Mm-hmm. Vincent Baker says it doesn't even really get good until four or five sessions into play. Yeah, so it does rely a lot on you know like developing those relationships, which is a challenge to achieve in a in a con setting, right? It does, yeah, and uh, it's it's you know it works okay, but it's not great for that. So you know, n- not like crazy indie games are the answer, but but, but uh, games that are really designed for a short form play or uh, scenarios for other games that are just rigorously focused for that, mm-hmm. uh, and then being prepared to do it and coming with the expectation that everyone is going to give their best um, and. Uh, you know, uh, holding people up to that expectation. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the, the biggest sort of thread that's come out of that question. Is, you know, like you just need to have, you just need to have good people there, and, and uh, that's true. And uh, you know, if you don't, then the game won't be that good. And at a convention, sometimes you just, as a as a facilitator or game master, sometimes you just have to accept and be like, these people are not the people that are going to enjoy this game when we're going to get through this and I'll do my best, but it's not going to be a, an A, it's probably going to be a B or maybe right. a C. Right. So you've been to uh, a million cons, literally all over the world. It's true, um, I've been to a million cons all over the world. <laughs> so what's the, uh, the best con uh, and why? And, and you can be sort of general this in terms of you know what makes a con really awesome. I mean, obviously... We've oh, watched- I don't need to do that. I can tell you literally what the best convention in the world is. There you go. That would be Camp Nerdly. Uh, Camp Nerdly is a, a convention uh, in uh, – it's right outside of Washington, D.C. in right. Prince William National Forest uh, at an old OSS training camp. Right. And uh, it's about 70 people, and you it's residential. You go and you stay in these barracks, these bunkhouses, and then you play games in the various training facilities uh, that are – or former training facilities that are now part of this campground. Mm. And it's totally relaxed. You cook – you know, you cook your food communally, you play uh, games at, at a really high caliber, really good people come and um, just tear it up. They're playing great games with great people all weekend in a beautiful setting. Uh, and uh, there's no hotel room to drag yourself back to. You just, you you know, you can play all night. It's mm-hmm. great. Yeah, Camp well, Nerdly. All right, best what time of year does that go off? It's usually in May, late May. Right. And is it invitational? Can people just sign up and go along or? And just sign up, uh, and it's. I think that it's. Uh, I probably shouldn't be bragging about it because you know the tragedy of the commons. But uh, yeah, it's you know lots of people come, and there's always new people, and it's always a good time. Alrighty, um, so get it to a couple of the or uh, well, the last the last two questions. Um, the first one is the sort of the, the summative question for uh, for uh, season one, and then we'll get to the summative question for season two. So adding up to a hundred. Assign points to reflect the relative importance of system, GM, and players. Now, I'm, now there's a certain blurring, I suppose, between GM players, but but your overall philosophy on you know what's what's the magic? Uh, sure. Contribution? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I uh, I refute that terminology, so I'm going to ignore the idea that there are game masters mm-hmm. and players. I think there are just players, sure. even if someone, uh, even in a game like Dungeons and Dragons where someone is the, the dungeon master, they're still a player. They're still participating. So you've got the system and players and uh, how do you divide that up? That's a great question. And as a game designer, it's something that I know you've had to wrestle with mm-hmm. as I, because yeah. you need to, 
leave space for uh, emergent properties coming from the players themselves. Like in Fiasco, there's no rule that tells you who gets to talk and when, Mm. right? Uh, And some games will tell you, you know, at at this time, this person gets to narrate and nobody can object to that. Uh, And that's something that I offloaded to the players because I trust that people can figure that out. Mm. So, uh, you know, it generally uh, 40, 60 system players, maybe, I don't know. I, I put a lot of, uh, weight on system. I think it's important that you have a clear and functional uh, way to mediate interaction between real human beings at the table. Yeah. And that's, that's what you're doing. And if you don't have that, the rest of it's going to fail, but that system has to be subservient to the inventive genius of the mm. people who are playing your game. So yeah. I'll say 40, 60. Fair enough. What do other people say, Daniel? What's uh, what's well, common? If, if people go across the board. There, there are people that will say, "Well, you know, system is five percent. It's all about the players. You know, you can sit around and you can, you know, you can tell a story where, um, you know, you have uh, people that just say stuff and then something something cool happens." And I would say to that 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 may be true, but then that's that's telling a story. You know, that's not actually a that's not actually a, a game per se. So again, have you had anybody who said system ninety players ten? Not quite that high, but I have had at least one guest that that feels that that the the players are subservient to the to the system, and his rationale was that um, without the system, the players don't like the players are boosted by the system. The players are made better by the yeah, system because they've sure. got steps to to step on. Now the inventiveness comes from them, but a, a well thought out. Um, system can help the players to achieve more than they would be capable of without that sort of framework in place. Uh, yeah, I, I can I can understand both both uh, extremes in terms of a response. I was just curious. Mm. That's and interesting. That's, yeah, I think most people come in sort of if they're going to go with the triad rather than a dyad. There, it's generally fairly evenly distributed. Um, and if it's if it's just two, then it is mostly players. I think. Uh, yeah. slash GM, but but uh, okay. So for for all the money, Jason, for the last <laughs> last uh, question we've got here. So if you had one role playing related wish, what would it be? You know, I'm really happy with what I'm doing and the people I'm doing what doing it with. Uh, so I I would I would ask that uh, you know everyone find the thing that makes that brings them joy and share it with other people without being hateful dicks. That would be that would make me so happy. Uh, if people could say, you know what, I love this thing and I would love to share this with you. Um, and what you do is fine and it's not what I do. And I love the fact that you found that thing. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Morningstar. That's it for episode 37 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, Daniel at hazardgaming.com. If you'd like to get a copy of Victoria, you can go to hazardgaming.com and click the Buy Victoria link. If you go to that page, you can get a numbered limited edition version of the book. There's also a link for purchasing it from Lulu, and you can get a PDF as well. The PDF is available from DriveThruRPG or RPG Now. But if you scroll all the way down on the right-hand side till you're just across from the field where you enter your email address to get a PDF from me, you'll find a secret link which takes you to a page where you can get the PDF for just $6.99. In any case, until next week, keep talking the walk. Thank you.